Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ruth, chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go and return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed him. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night... And should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me, and for your sake the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts from me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to him, To them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth and the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Uncle Micah. Please open with me to the book of Ruth. This is a beautiful story of redemption, and it's very timely for us during this Advent season. That's why it shows us this is really all about a group of people, God's people, waiting on God to provide what's called a kinsman redeemer, one who will restore this family who has been devastated by famine, who's been devastated by loss, as Naomi has lost um, her husband, her son-in-laws, I mean her sons, and now is left with these two foreigner daughter-in-laws um, who are traveling back with her to um, her home. So she's lost everything in this enemy territory called Moab, a place her family was never meant to go. They were meant to ride out this famine in faith that God would eventually end it in repentance. That's why God brought the famine to Israel, and they are Israelites. They were meant not to run, but to repent, and then to see God bring about redemption. But they ran, and because of that, the consequences were more than they could bear. We did see while uh, Elimelech, Naomi's husband who died, led the family off running away from God, 
she at least has the wits, once the loss has happened, to run back home and to seek refuge even in her bitterness that has utterly defined her at this moment. And they are waiting on God to provide, yet they have become, Naomi is an example of really the church and its impatience with God. Um, That's what she represents as this story is read to God's people. Um, It is to remind them of their own impatience. Well, what a timeless truth for us to meditate on during Advent. How impatient are we as a people? We are the most impatient generation that's maybe ever faced, lived on the face of this earth. We need information immediately. We hate lines. We order in. We have things delivered. We do not want to wait. And we spend most of our lives trying to avoid waiting. We are an impatient people, often characterized by our impatience. And some of us in this room, even more than that, are probably characterized in large part by your bitterness and your resentment. Because life has not worked as you thought it would. Someone is achieving something that you're jealous of. Someone is moving ahead of you at work. Or someone in your family has has hurt you. Someone in a relationship has brought you pain. And so you're full of resentment and bitterness that you hide with a smile. You put your best foot forward and you do life as well as you can. But you're full of this. And so you're waiting on God's redemptive hand in your life. With that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll we'll start. Lord, I do thank you for stories like this that remind us of your unrelenting love, that you are always, if you are holy God, and you are perfectly good, then that only means one thing. You're always working for your own good and glory and for the good of your people. Always. That doesn't stop. Even when calamities happen when we experience loss and pain it's it's actually working for good and that can be uh, for some of us who are really sitting in the midst of loss and pain right now that can sound trite it can sound taboo but it's still true i pray for those of us who've forgotten how good you are that you help us to remember for those who, are, who know your goodness, are celebrating it maybe even in their lives now with what you're providing, may they sit in this moment of life where the waters are still in communion with you, reminding others that seasons will come, the, the, the sun will shine again. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know if you all watched the SEC Championship last night, but uh, a lot of redemption happening there in that game. Uh, where are Branson and Kelly? Are they in here? Oh, Branson's here. Kelly's going to have to miss this. I'm so sorry. But uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on any statistics or facts about this. I'm not an Alabama fan. So um, I was kind of watching the game myself, and uh, their quarterback uh, got hurt. This, like, soft, he's a sophomore, right? He's I don't even know how to pronounce his name. What do you all call him? Tua. Uh, this five-star phenom, he's been playing all year, and he actually beat out uh, their the junior, senior quarterback, guy who won two national championships for you guys? One? Got to two national championships. He had well-established resume, Jalen Hurts, and he was benched in favor of this younger guy. And he tweeted out a tweet at the beginning of the year after he'd been benched. And it was a, it was a uh, was it, did he tweet this out last year or this year? 
in September. Yeah, so it's John 13, 7, where God says, you don't know what I'm doing now, but later you will. And talking about how he trusted that God would work his magic in his own timing. So while the rest of the country is looking at him and like, this poor dude, like what's he going to do? Surely he's going to transfer and leave the team. He said, I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait well. And, you know, he's just a football player on a football team, and I don't want to over-spiritualize it. But that was, that was a wonderful example of someone who was trusting in the Lord when they experienced loss and life not working as they thought it should. And so in light of that verse that he quotes, you don't know what I'm doing, but later you will, that's such a perfect theme for what we're looking at with Naomi. But Naomi doesn't say things like that. That's far from Naomi's mind. Right? All she's thinking about is her loss or pain. She's obsessed with it, actually. And she's not thinking about the past faithfulness of God. She's forgotten. Like many of us, she suffers from spiritual amnesia. How often do you forget in your times of struggle and doubt that God has been perfectly faithful to you? How many times have you seen him, follower of God, seen him and take an inventory of the times he has provided. He has used your pain for good to help reorient you and re, uh, restore you and renovate you. Matthew Henry in his commentary writes this, God takes away from us the comforts we stay ourselves too much upon and solace ourselves too much in here in the land of our sojourning that we may think more of our home in the other world and by faith and hope may hasten towards it. Earth is embittered to us, that heaven may be endeared to us. God wants you desperate. He wants you longing for eternal things and not just temporary things. A major priority in a Christian's life is to remember. It's not very complicated. It's a pretty simple practice, but one that is often neglected. You are called daily to simply remember. So when you spend time with the Lord, if you're trying to carve out time or you're feeling dissatisfied in your life and you can't figure out what's going on, maybe it's because you forgot. So that's why it's good for us to be here as the church. That's why it's good for Naomi to go home to the people of God so she can remember. But the mechanism for her memory in this story is remarkable. It doesn't come from someone in her own tribe. It comes from this foreigner named Ruth. And there's a lot for us to learn from two points. One, Naomi's characteristic bitterness. This is a common expression for all of us in our own suffering. And then we'll look at Ruth's unconventional commitment. Okay? Naomi's characteristic bitterness and Ruth's unconventional commitment. First, Naomi's characteristic bitterness. I'm going to actually start kind of from the end of the story and work our way forward. But we see Naomi, she's, she, left, um, she left her people during this famine. She left beautiful, happy, young, married, full. Everything you needed in that life was provided for her, and she returns bitter, sad, broken, poor, and empty. What hope is there for Naomi. It says that the people actually don't even recognize her. She is so bitter. Now imagine being that upset about your life that it literally transforms the way you look. You're so saddened 
that people no longer recognize you in your bitterness. That's when you know bitterness has utterly defined you. It's taken over to the point where she's like, don't even call me Naomi, which actually means pleasant. Just call me something totally different because I'm, I'm not who I was when I was here before. I'm a different person and I'm different because God has punished me for my sin. And it's his fault. So just call me bitter. Now, here's one thing I do love about Naomi. She's authentic. She doesn't come back with this fake smile on her face like everything's fine. She says, life stinks. This is as bad as it gets. I'm broken. And I'm not, I'm not going to pretend I'm anything else. So there's something to be said for that. While Naomi makes a lot of mistakes, there's something to be said for her authenticity. Now, does she take it to the point where she needs to be rescued from it? Yes. And a lot of us take our bitterness to that point where we need to be pulled up. And we need our home. We need the church. We need the people of God. That's who the church is. This people of God called out from their sin, redeemed and brought together. That's the church. That's what she's returning home to. And it's interesting to notice the type of church she returns home to. We'll get to that in just a second. One commentator writes this, Even calling herself Mara should have caused Naomi to ponder more deeply the events that took place in that wilderness location amongst her ancestors, where in spite of his people's grumbling, God nonetheless turned the bitter water into sweet and thereby demonstrated that he was Lord, your healer. Was that deliverance from their pain a reward for their goodness? Certainly not. It was a landmark measure of God's unfailing goodness and mercy and undeserving of an undeserving and rebellious and grumbling people. Mara was not just the definitive place of grumbling and bitterness. It was also the place where God's grace to grumblers was definitively displayed. If Naomi had just pondered the truth from the history of the covenant people, she might have brought herself new hope. She should have remembered that the next stop for Israel in their own wondering, and did you know this? Okay, I'm the pastor of the church. Like, I study the word for a living, and I totally forgot about this part of the story. I do remember the water from the rock. Great story. A lot of redemption. Jesus is there. Do you all know what happened after water from the rock? I didn't, so I'll tell you. She should have remembered that the next stop for Israel in their wandering after water from the rock was Elam, the place of rest. With its 12, this is in the middle of the desert, with its 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. God's people didn't have to wait for the conquest of the promised land to experience a measure of relief. Even along the desert road, there were brief oases of comfort. In the midst of her pain, Naomi forgot the history of God's faithfulness. Here's the remarkable thing, Christian. This is not just Naomi's story. This is your story. God has written you into their story as well. The water from the rock was your water from the rock. Elam is your Elam. God provides oasises for you as well. Do you even recognize them? Do you remember them? How easily we forget Elam, the places of rest. You notice how in Naomi's bitter self-loathing, she seems almost inconvenienced by Ruth. That's kind of how I took it as I studied the story. So, 
So you got her heading back home, and you got Ruth and Orpah making part of the journey with them. Maybe they're just outside of Moab, and, and they know where they're going. And, and Naomi's thinking to herself, all you all do is remind me of the pain of what God has done in my story. So just go back. You don't even worship my God. You're not going to find hope in my God. Go back and worship your false gods. She almost encour- she, she encourages them. She knows in, 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 in her worldview that what they worship is false, that the, what they go back to is death. And she's, she's so bitter that she's saying, I don't even care. Just go back. And yet, they, they tell them, no, we want to stay with you. And then as she, she encourages them to leave, Orpah, viewing things with her eyes and not with her heart, views the situation and very understandably, which is probably the decision I would have made, yeah, I don't, I don't want to go with you anyways. I'm going to head back. If you're going to act like this, this doesn't seem too hopeful for me. Maybe there's something back with, at least I've got a family there, maybe a job, a husband that's, that, that I might meet one day. I, you're right. I love you, but I'm, I'm going to stay put. And yet Ruth, of all people, decides that she wants to stick it out. You know, Naomi, again, she's a picture of the church. She's a picture of Israel, and Israel did the exact same thing. They became so frustrated with God in the desert. You know, the whole purpose of Israel being sent out into the wilderness for 40 years to wander was for them to live on mission. It was for them to be the light of the world in the darkest of places. It was for them to bump up against these other nations and let them know about the true and living God. And what did they lose sight of? They lost sight of their entire mission. They became so embittered at some points they wanted to go back to Egypt into slavery where they were beaten and mistreated. That sounded better than following God and following God on mission and suffering for the sake of God's name being known. And they became so embittered by it that they lost their way. They stopped being a light to the world. Naomi's the same way. She didn't even care. You worship your false gods. I got to take care of me. How many of you all are in that place? Do you know that God has you on mission? Do you know that you are sojourners in this life to be a light to the world? And how many of you are so focused on your circumstances and what you haven't gotten that you don't even think about your neighbor? Yeah, you, hey, listen, I get it. You're worshiping something that's not even real. Just have at it, as long as it makes you happy. I just want you to be happy. It's kind of like the, pluralistic, postmodern way we think about things, even in the church. i got to take care of me. I'm just trying to get to, just be happy I'm at church. You can't expect me to, like, be a light to the world. You don't know how hard my life is. It's that entitlement that we live with, the individualistic, self-gratifying thing that can consume us like this bitterness that consumes the end. So what do we do? Well, a lot of us return home to a judgmental home or church, right? This is, this is such, Israel's such a picture of what the church is today. Naomi's hurting. She's left. She's, uh, she was part of, part of what they were doing. Everything's going great. She leaves because things get too hard, and she comes back, and everybody's like, what are you doing? I don't even recognize you. How many churches are like that? Are we like that? I know people who've left Flat Rock. If they come back, how are they treated? Do 
You just look at them like, yeah, good luck for you. I didn't leave. Or are we the welcoming church that God calls us to be? Do we welcome prodigals back here? Is this a prodigal welcoming church? It's a good question to take inventory on. It's a good thing for us to pray about. You look how Naomi treats Ruth. Ruth, you know, decides to commit herself to following her. And it says, uh, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Do you know what that verse means? She got the silent treatment. So this inconvenience, this appendage that's following Naomi wherever she goes that she just wants to get rid of because it reminds her of her old life and her pain is determined to stay with her. Naomi just doesn't have any words for that. Fine, just go with me. But I'm not talking to you. This isn't how I thought things should go. And then you see Ruth's unconventional commitment. What do I mean by unconventional Well, Ruth is a Moabite. She's an enemy of the people of God. She is a foreigner, and she has decided, as she looks at this situation, going into a place where now she's referred to as the Moabite, which that's not a good label to have. This is She will forever be known in Israel amongst their people as the enemy of God. We won't even call her by her name. My mother-in-law, who I've decided to follow, is giving me the silent treatment and won't even talk to me. So as I assess this situation, the conventional thing for me to do would be to go back home. The unconventional thing to do would be to stay with her. It makes no sense. Why would Ruth choose to do this? We aren't given a reason. I tried to think about it. I I was like, surely I can piece these things together and parse this out and give you the reason why Ruth decides to stay with Naomi. I have no idea. I would not have done this. And yet Ruth doesn't just say, I'll go back with you and I'll help you out. And maybe things will get better. She says, I'm going to be an immigrant with you. I'm going to be the enemy of the people of God, but I'm going to come. And not only that, I'm going to make your God my God. This God that you worship, that you're so mad at, I like him. I actually believe that goodness lies in his tribe and in his land amongst his people. Where does she believe that? There is no evidence for her to believe that. Nothing has happened that would make anyone think, that's home. You know what it is? The only thing I can come up with? It's faith. Right? It's the Holy Spirit. He's doing something, even in the Old Testament. He was around then, too. And he's doing something, and she says... Don't urge me to leave or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. You know, one of the most paramount things for people in this ancient culture was, it was to secure a gravesite with your family in their lands so that you could go into the afterlife knowing that you were going to be reunited with your family and everything was going to be taken care of and people were going to protect your burial site and all this 
you know, supernatural, spiritual, paganism stuff was believed about it. And so a big part of your life was making sure you secure your, your family burial site. I remember when Daisuke, one of our friends, our Japanese friends who became a Christian here at Flat Rock, he said he, he converted from, from Buddhism. He grew up in a Buddhist family. And one of the first things he said to me is, you know, he's explaining to me about his life in Japan. He said, part of my responsibilities is to take care of the family temple where everyone's buried and to maintain it. What am I going to do now when I go back? I don't believe there's anything to that anymore. My whole worldview has changed. And you see even today, like, that's an important thing in some tribes and some cultures. And what Ruth is saying is, I'm going to die a death to that. And I'm going to go to a place where I don't have a family, where I don't have a name. And I'm going to put your needs, Naomi, above my needs in order to serve you and help you. You know what we're witnessing here is an Old Testament conversion. Ruth becomes a Christian here. She becomes a part of the people of God. I mean, what better confession is there? Your God will be my God. In other words, I'll love what he loves. I'll hate what he hates. I'll value what he values. So if you're not a Christian here and you're trying to examine what you're living for and which God you want to, you want to love and be, you know, you, you, who you want to worship. If you don't know what to do, do this. I want your God to be my God. May the Lord, she covenants not only with Naomi, but with God. May the Lord, your God, or Yahweh, do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. With Ruth's conversion really comes great risk. Ruth's committing herself to serving God in a foreign land where she'll be perceived as an outsider and possibly even an enemy, and God blesses her risk with his plans to include her as part of his people and restore her life. So he has plans, as he always has. This is the heart of God, not just for his literal physical people, the Jewish people, or the church, but he also has a real heart for the foreigner. And he's all about redeeming both. You know, why sign up to be an immigrant? Well, we have people in this church who are immigrants who know what, the, what she's signing up for. And do you know why immigrants choose to leave their home to go to another home? It's because they believe something will be better. They believe their life will be better for it. And that's what Ruth believes here. Ruth's way really is the gospel way. There's so many parallels between her and Jesus. And it's so beautiful that in the Old Testament, Ruth, a woman, characterizes Jesus more than most of the men in the culture. And while Naomi may be playing the part of Israel, Ruth is playing the part of Jesus. Because you know what Israel was? It was bitter. You know who we were? We were bitter and resentful. You know who Jesus was? He was one who denied himself and took up his cross and put the needs of his people that he loved above his own needs so that he could come and make a home with us when it made no sense. Did you have anything to offer? Did Jesus choosing to love you make any sense to you or to the world? No. So remember this morning on this first Sunday of Advent why he loves you. He loves you out of his own good pleasure. Not because of anything you've merited. People could examine your life and wonder why in the world you deserve grace and mercy. You don't. 
And yet he has chosen to bestow his favor upon you. He has chosen to covenant himself with you, for better or for worse. You notice like the nature of those marital vows that Ruth is almost making with Naomi. For richer or for poorer, till death do us part. God has made the same covenant promise to unite himself with us. And where Naomi is a picture of bitter Israel, Ruth is a picture of faithful Jesus. And unlike Orpah, Ruth didn't choose with her eyes, she chose with her heart. Trusting that the way of death would lead to the way of life. And like Ruth, God committed himself to our bitter souls to come live with us for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. I'll close with this. Uh, We're going to sing a song uh, at the end of our service. So our closing hymn that's coming up after we go to the table and do our confession is a story, I mean, is a a hymn that's one of my um, favorite hymns, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. What What an appropriate hymn for us to sing on the first Sunday of Advent and in relationship to this story. But what I really love about it is the story behind it. At age 20, the writer of this hymn, a guy named George Matheson, he was engaged to be married, but he had been losing his sight. and He was suffering from a condition that was causing him blindness. And he explained this to his fiancée. And do you know what her choice was? I can't marry you. I'm done. I'm sorry. My love knows abound here. (laughs) My love has limits, and it is your sight. And so I'm not going to marry you. And George had had a very promising academic career. He had actually already written two theological books at this point. He was teaching. He was in academia. and he He was on a trajectory to be very successful in that world. And as he became blind, he lost his job. He wasn't able to continue on writing. He actually became a pastor because you know what they say about pastors? You become a pastor when you know you can't do anything else. Did you all know that? Yeah. I took inventory in my life. It's like nothing else I can do. Pastor. <laughs> That's what he chose. He ended up preaching to a church that grew to over 1,500 people, and he needed someone to help take care of him because back then they just didn't have the same access to the things that blind people do now. And so he needed help, and his sister decided to put her life on hold to help him. Well, she helped him for about 20 years until she herself met someone, and she decided to get married. And she told George, i got to take care of my husband. I can't take care of you anymore. And so the day came uh, for the wedding, the night before the wedding, actually. And as George was reflecting on his own aborted wedding, in the darkness of his own, the, the utter darkness of his own blindness, in the fear of his sister leaving, in a deep state of fear and grief, he wrote this hymn. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer full be. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze its day. O brighter, fairer be. O joy that seekest me through my pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Let's pray.